Uh, well, welcome to Freedom Village Church. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. My name is Levi. I have the privilege of being the family pastor here uh, at FVC. And um, if you are new, I know I welcomed you before, but if you are new, after the service, um, there's a newcomers meeting um, in which uh, me and a few other welcome uh, team members will be involved in, where if you want to learn more about uh, what we're doing here at FVC, uh, our vision and whatnot, and how you can get involved possibly, um, then please come to that. Um, it'll be downstairs on the first floor. There's a little table. Um, there may or may not be cookies. Maybe I shouldn't say that just in case there isn't. Um, but please come. Uh, get to know me. I'd love to get to know you. Um, and we can learn more about what we're doing here. Um, and also, uh, in, in some other news, uh, the kids' ministry is now fully running. Uh, You've got green room and blue room, younger kids and older rooms that are running. And also youth is, is, is in full throttle now. So we're looking forward to this next season where we are preparing kids, preparing youth uh, for lifelong growth in Christ. Um, so if you will, um, please be praying for those things. It's a very important thing uh, to raise up the next generation. Um, so if you will, it's a very, we don't take it lightly. It's very serious. Um, but it's also not the easiest thing at times. So if you will, please be praying for us um, that we do that as best we can and as effectively as we can. So we've been through a series on the book of Haggai. And um, this is the third and final message within that series. And I know I said before that Haggai wrote four messages to the people of Israel, right? Two chapters, four separate messages. But the reason we finish in three um, is because the third and fourth message that Haggai sends actually were sent on the same day. So we're going to be super biblical and send it on the same day as well, all right? Messages three and four. Okay, we're going to do what, what God intended for the book of Haggai. All right, before we get into it uh, too much, let's pray, and then we'll get started together. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you speak through your word. Um, God, um, do what you do. May, may our hearts be attentive to what you have for us, not what I have for us. Uh, put me to the side, that you speak clearly to our hearts, that our uh, minds be attentive and our hearts be open to what you have for us today. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1985, in the British Open, a golfer by the name of David Robertson, he was caught placing the ball. So, yeah, he was, golf games were televised, but they weren't as televised as they are today. If you watch a golf game today, every single detail, I mean, there's, you see like a, an arrow where the ball went, it's insane. But back then it wasn't as televised. So he, he actually, he was on the green, and as he's placing the marker down, Uh, Picking the marker back up, he places his ball a little closer to the hole. No one noticed during the game. So game went on. He actually had a really good hole, and he was winning. However, there was footage, and they looked at it later, and they saw that this particular golfer, David Robertson, had cheated. And so he was was fined $30,000, and he was banned from the pro leagues for 30 years, which means you're done. Uh, in the Seoul Olympics of 1988, uh, Canada's Ben Johnson, he won gold in the 100-meter sprint only to have the medal stripped from him three days later because it was found out that he was doping with steroids. I mean, you can go on and on about steroid stories, right? And I remember watching one game. It was a volleyball game. I love volleyball. And uh, it was an international game. I believe it was France against Poland. And uh, it was a pretty intense game, very tight. And one of the Polish players went up for a block to block the French player, uh, their spike. And if you know anything about volleyball, you know that if the ball is in play, you can't touch the net, right? You can't touch the net. 
So as the Polish player goes up to block, one of the French players stayed down. He didn't jump. And he shook the net. Because the head... (gasps) How dare he? (laughs) If you're online, I said that and everybody totally freaked. Okay. So, So he stayed down. He shook the net. The head ref, his job is to make sure that nobody touches the net, and he calls the net violation, right? So he's looking, and all he saw was the net shake, and the Polish player jumped. So he assumed, as the French player wanted him to assume, that they touched the net. So the point was given to, the, the, to France. Um, however, the coach of the other team, the Polish coach, saw what he had done. And if you know anything about international play, you know that in each set you have two challenges, in which case you can look at the replay and see if the ref had it wrong. And he used the challenge, and it came up. In fact, it came up on the big screen so all the fans could see as well. And all the fans could see him shake that net. Uh, The truth is, in sports, winning actually isn't everything. But how you win must be within the rules of the game. If not, you're going to be penalized and lose whatever award you might have thought you won in the first place. And in the Christian life, we're going to see today that it is important to God not only that we obey, but how we obey, how we serve him, how we run the race of the Christian life. Is it okay that we just do good things for God? Or is there something else that God wants from us as we serve him? Um, and, And we're specifically going to see today, and you're going to see it on the screen, God is looking for laborers that seek earnestly after personal holiness. So not only that are working for his kingdom, doing the right things, but are also seeking after personal holiness as they do that thing. That's what we're going to see from Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. Um, Normally, when when I preach, I try to break down the text in a way that's like, you know, here's point one, point two, point three, point four. Some texts are harder to do that than others. This one is one of those. So what we're going to do, I'm just going to admit to you up front, we're going to be going through a few verses at a time and unpacking truth just that way instead of trying to split it down um, so technically, um, which is different. I just wanted to tell you that so you don't expect something and don't get what you expected. All right. And if you haven't been here and you don't know the story of Haggai or you have been here, we took a break last week. Uh, Mr. Shen, uh, Pastor Shen from Gospel City came up and spoke about boasting in, in the cross Um, Thank you for that, uh, because I have been away for that week. Um, But if you haven't been here, or you've forgotten a little bit about the book of Haggai. Um, Haggai is one of 12 minor prophet books, which doesn't mean that they're less important than the major prophets. It just means they're smaller. Those of us who are a little more or shorter understand that just because you're smaller doesn't mean your value has decreased. Amen? (laughs) Okay. It's one of the 12 minor prophets. And within the minor prophets, there's also something called post-exilic or post-exile prophet books. And Haggai, which means they came after the exile. And Haggai is the first post-exile prophet. So 70 years, the people of Israel are in Babylon because they've been captured and they're taken captive there. And during that 70 years, the Persians came along and they said, we're going to conquer the Babylonians. So they did. And the Persians said to the Israelites, you can go back to your land if you want to. So after 70 years of being in Babylonian captivity, 50,000 of the Jews said, you know what? 
God has a promise for us in the promised land. He has a plan for us. We're going to go back in faith. So 50,000 of them return back to the land of Israel. But when they get there, everything is destroyed. I mean, everything. The houses are leveled. The, even the house of the Lord is flat. It's been destroyed. So there's a bit of excitement as they get back. They're like, I'm ready to rebuild. Let's do this thing, right? Two years, they're building. This is building, this motion. So they're building, and they build a beautiful foundation the first two years. And they start building their houses. They're excited, but opposition comes again. And this time, the Samaritans, they come up, and they start to oppose the building of the temple. And the leader of Persia starts to oppose the building of the temple, so they stop. They keep building their houses, but they leave the house of the Lord desolate. Now, the opposition starts to wane, starts to go down. But 15 years go by, and they start to get used to walking by the house of the Lord and it being, in, it being destroyed. But they continue to build their own houses, in fact, pretty nice houses. And God sends Haggai, 15 years after they return back to their land, he sends Haggai to tell them, hey, listen, your priorities, they whack, right? They're out of place. You need to fix that. Because you're building your own, you're saying it's not yet time to build my house, but you seem to have time to build your own houses, your own comfort, your own prosperity. Get to it, right? And if you remember in chapter one, they respond well. They say, you know what, you're right. I will get to it. So they start to build, right? They start to build again the house of the Lord. They respond in reverence and worship. They start to build. And then chapter two comes along, chapter two, verses one through nine. And that message was, as they're building, they're discouraged because they realize what they're doing isn't what they expected it, would, it to look like. They start to look back, and they remember Solomon's temple, which was huge and fancy. That was the glory days, right? They're like, wow, what we're building now is nothing in comparison to that. But God encourages them and says, I'm going to use your small acts of faithfulness to do big things for my kingdom. Just trust me. Keep at it. Right? That's the encouraging message of Haggai 2, 1 through 9. And so what happens in the book of Haggai is the first message... And the third message, they're challenging, right? These are challenging messages. And the second message and the fourth message are encouraging messages. So as we come to chapter th- uh, the third message today, chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, and then the fourth message, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, understanding that this is going to be challenging again. There's a challenge that Haggai has for us, that God has for us through Haggai. And that challenge is we need to wake up and start taking care of personal holiness within our life. So what we're going to do, as I said before, we're going to unpack, go through a few verses, unpack truths, go through a few verses, unpack truths, and hopefully by the end of it, we've been helped. All right, so Haggai chapter 2, we're going to start verses 10 through 13. Verses 10 through 13. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Yes. Whenever we study the Bible, we try to understand what it means for the context, and then we try to see, we try to find the bridge from their context to our context. Sometimes, 
that is more difficult than others. Because when I first read this, I'm like, huh? (laughs) What about steak in your fold and touching stew? What does this mean, right? But that doesn't stop us from digging deeper, trying to see what God has for us. Um, Because here you're going to notice that Haggai is, he's calling on the priests, right? Those that are experts in the law. And he asked them two basic questions uh, having to do with consecrated or set-aside meat for worship, right? If you, if, you, um, if you have anything in your house, like a towel that you use for special guests, I don't know, or like dishes that you set aside for a special guest that you use, you set that aside for a special purpose. In the Old Testament, um, we find that they consecrated or set aside certain items, specific days, and particular animals to be used for worship. They set those aside. They were consecrated. Because one simply doesn't approach a perfectly holy, pure, and undefiled God as a creature that is less than any of those things. Instead, God graciously gave provision and gave his people specific instructions on how they could come before him and continue a relationship with him despite their sinfulness. And of course, us today, because of what Christ has done on the cross for us, we have that access to the Father, right? We, we have direct access to him. We, we can continue our relationship with him because of what Christ has done for us. So one such way for the people of Israel uh, was through a sacrificial system, which, com- which demanded uh, consecrated meat, right? So Haggai leans on the priest's familiarity with this system, right? He knows that they know it, so he asked them, in other words, say you got a piece of meat, and, the, and it's been set apart for temple use, can the holiness of that stake be transferred through contact? Professional opinion? No. Okay, Haggai says. What about the opposite? If someone is unclean, impure, or defiled, in this case, because they've come into contact with a dead body, uh, can that defilement be transferred through contact? Professional opinion? Yes. So, so here's the point Haggai's trying to make here, and the priest would have understood well as they're, as they're listening. Defilement is contagious, holiness is not. That's the point here. Defilement is contagious, holiness is not. And I think we're familiar with this. Some of us have had COVID in the home. Some of us have had, <laughs> have had COVID in the home while, while the other person in the home hasn't had COVID, right? So what do we do? We... we put them in a room or we put us in a room and we separate us, right? What we don't do is the person with COVID does not do this. Give me your health. Give me a hug. I want your health. We don't do that because we understand that health does not just magically come to you through contact, but my co- someone's COVID could be transferred to someone else through contact, right? And that's what's going on here. That's what he's trying to say. He's saying pollution spreads. Purity does not. And it's the same with holiness. And just right there, I think we need to understand the contagious nature of defilement and sinfulness. And are we really taking care of what we are being filled up with? What media are we taking in? Because defilement is contagious. What kind of music are we listening to? Because defilement is contagious, right? Rapidly contagious. So Haggai's reminding his people that defilement, unworthiness, sinfulness, they're contagions. 
Um, whereas holiness, purity, and divine acceptability are not. Now, why do they need to be reminded of this lesson? And we find that in verse 14. Why do they need to be reminded? And Haggai answered and said this. <clears throat> so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So it seems that the people were thinking that since they, as God's holy and chosen nation, were rebuilding the holy temple, that all that they touched becomes holy. But that wasn't the case. In fact, God tells them, he says, uh, no, you're defiled, you're polluted, you're unclean, and as such, everything you touch, every prayer you offer, every sacrifice you make, all likewise is defiled, polluted, and unclean. Defilement is contagious, holiness is not. So what... And what does that have to do with them building the temple? Because the temple is a holy place. It's a holy place set apart for the worship of God. And the people would reason, they would think, that because they were working at this holy place doing a good thing, the people would reason that because they were working there, they were helping in some way, they they were a part of the nation that was doing the project, because of that they might think somehow they were also holy. They looked the part, didn't they? They were doing the right stuff. They were doing good work. But was their heart really in it? Which is the question I think Haggai's trying to get at. Had they really made a deep core change in their life? Had they really changed at all? Because ultimately, God doesn't just want your service. He wants you. And I think sometimes we can, and before we get catapulted into a season of busyness, that is good work. Some of us in school, we're ministering, we're discipling young kids, we're discipling coworkers. Some of us uh, in the secular workplace where we're evangelizing, we're trying to be a light in a dark place. Some of us are serving here and we're going into a season that's going to be more busy. But as we do kingdom work, we are to consider consistently our own hearts. Religious activity is not the same as godliness. He wants your heart. He wants your work, but he wants your heart first and foremost. And we can pile one thing on top of another, um, good things, and neglect an aspect of our life that no one else sees but God does. And it's hindering our relationship with God. And I think what God wants from us today is to slow down and take a serious look at anything in our lives that might be impeding our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I think there's actually something quite important here that we are to heed as we run, as we, as we look to serve God with all that we are, and that is that we are to lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us. So it's not just sin. So not only are we to ask ourselves, okay, is what I'm doing sinful or is what I'm doing wrong? But we're to ask ourselves, does it help me run? Does it help me run for the Lord? Does it help me serve his kingdom? Does it help me love my king? Does it get in the way of of me trying to become more patient, more kind, more loving, more gentle, more holy, more pure? Does it get in the way of my pursuit of holiness, of Christ-likeness? Lay aside every encumbrance and sin to run the race that God has set before you. Haggai continues in in verse 15 of chapter 2. 
And he says, now give careful thought to this, to this from this day on. Consider how things were um, before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the works of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Here we see the discipline of the Lord. Um, And I think, uh, well, for me, it's happened, but I think for some of us, Maybe we're doing the right things. We feel like, you know, oh, I've been, I've been faithful to God. I've been doing the work he's called me to and all these things, but the effectiveness just isn't there as I expected it, or it's not quite as fruitful as I think it should be. What, what's going on here? Maybe God's trying to tell you. Maybe he's holding that back, saying maybe there's something in your life that you're looking over, but that I see. Maybe there's something you really need to take care of today, and you need to go, but you need to slow down. And as, as Haggai would say, consider your ways. Because I don't just want your service, I want all of you. We need to take time to step back and take care of those, of those things. Um, but also what we see here is, what he's doing is he's asking them to remember, right? Remember how it was before the temple construction began. In chapter 1, we remember God called them to prioritize him above their own comfort, their own prosperity. And the people, because of that, they forfeited divine provision, It had cost them to be unfaithful before God. It says, give careful thought, God says. And then in verses 18 and 19, he calls for more careful thinking. So he says, from this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. So God wants them to compare, just right now, then verse now. Think about how it was and about how it is. Then you were unfaithful, paneling your own houses, ignoring me. That's chapter one. And your harvest suffered. Now think now, carefully. You're building my house. You're doing the right thing. But has your harvest improved? No. So maybe, just maybe, God is looking for something in his people other than mere obedience. Something is still missing. The people had had sinned and were experiencing the consequences and they thought by building the holy temple it would make them holy because they're in prosperity. They would make them holy because they're in contact with the holiness of the temple. They figured they could catch holiness through contact and proximity to God's house, forgetting that holiness isn't contagious. You see, they want to live good lives. They want to be seen as good people And how do they do that? By spending time, energy, and building consecrated temples of humanitarianism, benevolence, altruism, self-defined morality. They believe that what they do transfers to who they are. That if they do enough good, they become good enough. They think holiness is contagious. And what's concerning is when we behave similarly. That just like the people Haggai was correcting here, we think that living Christianly makes us holy. That instead of leaning on the Spirit in repentance and trust for change in our life, we try to simply act right, serve lots, and give much, not realizing that this do-it-yourself holiness project is doomed from the start, and that instead of becoming more holy, we're actually defiling everything around us because we haven't stopped to truly take seriously holy living before God. And in recent years, we've seen this, right? We've seen prominent Christian names, popular Christian speakers, 
popular Christian art, uh, authors, um, Christian even pastors, that were known for their deep intellect, that were looked up to for um, b- to be spiritual leaders within the church, yet they're eventually exposed for some deep-seated moral issue. And we learn that they've been verbally abusive or abrasive. They, they looked the part, doing all the right things on the outside, uh, but they were spiritually corroding on the inside. So I think today what God wants us to do is, is take some time before we get catapulted into that season of good work, work that is necessary, work we need to do, work that we're called to do. Take some time to consider, is there something I'm neglecting in my own life that needs attention? Because God, first and foremost, wants our hearts. He wants us uh, before he wants our service. So what I want to do here is, is also give some practical steps towards pursuing holy lives. Obviously, we're not going to be perfect, but we are called as Christians to pursue Christ-likeness. And what are some ways we can do that? Um, First, I'll just mention, honestly assess your life. Honestly assess your life. We're so good at making excuses. I mean, you know, everyone, everyone struggles with this, right? Or, Or, you know, no one really knows about this or it isn't hurting anyone, so it's fine. We are very good at making excuses, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, we are followers of Christ, and as such, we are to honestly assess our lives based on his life, based on the word of God. We are called to look like him. We are called to grow in our likeness of him. Honestly assess your life, uh, but also we're to find others, find others. The world's motto is every man for himself at least mostly in the West. Not so with the pursuit of holiness. Holiness must be pursued in community. We grow in Christ-like holiness best when we live in structures of mutual accountability and edification. And this goes both ways. It's not, not just the people that are seeking it, but the people that are receiving those that are seeking um, to, to live more holy lives. We are to, when they come to us, right, we are to do our best to help them. We have that responsibility to bear one another's burdens to pray for one another. If one stumbles, his partner helps lift him up to to a steady pace. Have you linked arms with fellow believers around you in the pursuit of holiness? James 5, 6, as it's up there. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Find others. So first, we honestly assess our life and second, we find others in the pursuit of holy living. And thirdly, And the most important aspect is to lean on the Lord. Consistently call on the Lord to be your strength in your pursuit of personal growth and holiness. In fact, ultimately, he's the best place we can go uh, for the much-needed work of, of personal holiness in our life because God's holiness is infinite. Whereas anything you and I produce, even the very best of what we do, is temporary, fading, and flawed, God's holiness is consistent and inexhaustible. It never sputters, and it never runs out. God's holiness is infinite. In fact, in what we've already read today, um, Haggai subtly contrasts man-made holiness uh, with God's transcendent holiness. I don't think it's going to be up on the screen, but we have read it today. Um, If you have your text, you can look back with me. Then Haggai said... So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do, whatever they offer, there is defiled. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. 
God and God alone is infinitely holy, completely other and totally undefiled. 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, there is no one holy like the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, and they said to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. As it is written, be holy because I am holy. So not only is God the standard of holiness in which we are called, but he is the inexhaustible source of holiness in which we must draw. It has to come from him. There's no other place, no other source, and he will never run out. And that's why we call on him. But also, so he's, he, his holiness is infinite, but his power is sufficient. His power is sufficient. Even if we could conjure up a little bit of holiness on our own, we're too feeble and fickle to make it stick. Even if I could do some act of obedience today and, and it would be credited as holiness uh, before God, um, it would do no good because tomorrow I'd probably mess it up. But in contrast, God's holiness is applied to us with power that is strong and unchangeable. Haggai says in verse 20 um, of chapter 2, that will be up on the screen. Verse 20 of chapter 2, he says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai in the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of uh, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. So God's reminding his people here, my power knows no equal. King and kingdoms are no match for God. Uh, The greatest armies in the world are like puppets in his divine hands. Creation itself trembles at his power, power that is sufficient to judge, and it is sufficient to save us. So why do we call upon the Lord for the task of making us holy? Because not only is he the infinite source, but he has the power to override our defilement. Because it's no use calling a plumber who has all the right tools, but not the strength to turn a wrench. God has the supply and he has the power to apply it as well. So we call on him for help in our pursuit of holiness. And third and finally, his faithfulness is perfect. His faithfulness is perfect. Not only is his holiness infinite and his power sufficient, but his faithfulness is perfect. And the book finishes with this prophecy in verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So God promises Zerubbabel, the leader of the 50,000, the remnant here, that he will be faithful to what he said he would do. Whereas there there had been a time in the not-too-distant past because Zerubbabel's granddad was actually a terrible king, awful king, and it seemed like God's messianic promise that the seed of the woman, the Davidic king, the, the anticipated deliverer, the Messiah, that that promise had been spoiled by the people's unfaithfulness. But God here reaffirms to Zerubbabel, who's a good king, he reaffirms to him his faithfulness. And we know that from the line, if you've read Matthew chapter 1, you know that from the line of Zerubbabel would come the Savior, the one who saves his people from their sins. 
So what are some steps toward holy living? The first um, here, there, there's more that could be said, but the first here, honestly assess your life. Don't make up excuses. Assess your life compared to scripture. Take time to do that. And then secondly, find others. We are to pursue holiness in community. And thirdly, lean on the Lord because his holiness is infinite, his power is sufficient, and his faithfulness is perfect. So how is your pursuit of holiness going today? I know we're working for the Lord because if you read in Matthew chapter 6, verse 23, it's not going to be up on the screen. You just have to trust me. Matthew chapter 6, verse 23 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added up to you. What it doesn't say is, Seek first his kingdom and then his righteousness second. It says, seek first his kingdom, work for his kingdom, be all in for serving him. But at the same time, what is first, what is primary, is that we seek his righteousness and that we seek personal holiness at the same time. So how is that pursuit going in your life? Maybe it's time for us to step back and consider our ways, consider your thoughts, consider holy living. And as we do that, we assess our life honestly. We find others to do that in community with, and we lean on the Lord every step of the way. So I'm going to close in prayer now and ask the praise team to come on up.